so I, I love to travel. Uh, traveling all over the world over the years has become one of my favorite things. Uh, I love to travel. And uh, as I've traveled more and more, I've learned to take with me only the bare necessities. When I first started out, I was more like a Boy Scout, always be prepared. I took everything I thought that I might possibly need. Uh, but over the years, I've learned just, just scale it down and take only the bare necessities. But one thing I take with me everywhere I go is this bag right here. Uh, this bag right here goes with me everywhere I go. I've had this bag for about 12 years, and uh, it goes with me everywhere. Uh, this bag, by the way, it's made by a guy out in Fort Worth, a company called Saddleback Leather, and everything he makes, belts, wallets, bags, everything, this isn't, I don't get a, a cut or anything from this, but uh, everything he makes has a 100-year warranty. A 100-year warranty, the motto of the company is they'll fight over it when you're dead. And so uh, I can attest to the fact that this thing lasts. It's gone with me everywhere I've gone for the last 12 years. Everything I need is in that bag right there. And years ago, the Lord taught me a powerful lesson with that bag on a mission trip I went on to Haiti and I'll tell you more about that after the passage we're going to look at this morning in Mark chapter 6. So if you would please open your Bible to Mark chapter 6. And as we look at our verses together this morning, we're going to see Jesus is sending his disciples out into the mission field. He has a mission trip in mind for his disciples. He's sending them out. And what's interesting is Sandwiched between the story of Jesus sending out his disciples are these stories of heightened opposition. We're going to see two stories of heightened opposition as Jesus in the middle sends his disciples out. We're going to see Jesus sending his disciples out in the middle of this opposition, but he is going to provide for them all that they need. But on each side of that central story, we're going to see Jesus himself opposed in Nazareth among his own people. And then we'll see as well John the Baptist opposed by Herod himself. So that's what we're going to see. You can find it there on your outline. Number one, we're going to see opposition at home as Jesus faces opposition. Number two on your outline, opposition and provision in mission for the disciples of Jesus. And then number three, opposition from authorities as John the Baptist is opposed and even killed. So again, grab your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 6. Number one on your outline, opposition at home. Let me read for you first, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. John Mark tells us this. Jesus went out from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, or Joseph, and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So 
Picking back up from what we saw last week in Mark chapter 5, Jesus' center of operations at this point in his ministry is Capernaum. Uh, But here in Mark chapter 6, we read that Jesus leaves Capernaum temporarily and he goes to Nazareth, to his hometown, about 20 miles away. And we read there in verse 2 that it's the Sabbath and he's teaching in the synagogue. But note the people's response to Jesus as they hear him teaching in the synagogue. John Mark tells us that they are astonished at his teaching, which might seem positive, but then notice the questions. They start asking questions about the origin of his teaching. Where did he get this? They start asking questions about his wisdom and about his power to do such amazing miracles. They're astonished at Jesus. But at the same time, despite his impressive words and deeds, he's simply too ordinary for them. They say he's just a carpenter. We know his family. This, by the way, is the perfect illustration of the famous phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus is simply too well known to them, so the response is that they take offense at him. Notice again the last part there at verse 3, they took offense at him. Literally, they're scandalized by him. They stumble on account of him. This is tragic, of course, because Jesus is one of their own. He's from Nazareth, and yet in their familiarity with him, they end up being scandalized by him. The evidence is clear, but they refuse to believe it. And so in response to them, notice what Jesus says in verse 4. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and is in his own household. Here Jesus responds to their opposition, their resistance of Jesus by quoting this famous pro, uh, pro, proverb that a prophet is not appreciated in his own home. Again, familiarity breeds contempt. And because of their opposition to Jesus, notice verses 5 and 6, and he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Because of the opposition Jesus faces in Nazareth, among his own people, notice John Mark tells us he wondered, or he was astonished at their unwillingness to believe. Because of their persistent unbelief, Jesus doesn't do any more miracles in Nazareth. And as far as the scripture says, he never returns to Nazareth after this. By the way, there's a great lesson for us here. If you've been in and around the church for a long time, don't allow your familiarity with Jesus to lead to contempt or opposition. Sometimes one of the dangers of of being in it, it's good to be in church, by the way, I'm not suggesting you leave, 
Um, but one of the dangers we face is we become so familiar with these stories. We uh, know all of Jesus' miracles. We've read all of the sermons Jesus gave. We, we know it all, and then our familiarity with it, we lose our awe of who he is. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And even in our own way, in our familiarity, we can begin to oppose him. What's really sad is that this point in the Gospel of Mark, the opposition to Jesus is expanding and expanding. It's expanded now even to his own hometown people. And as we look at number two on your outline, this opposition is going to be extended now even to the disciples. But what's fascinating, what's interesting is is that at this point in the Gospel of Mark, what Jesus begins to do is he begins to withdraw more and more from his public ministry. He begins equipping more and more his own disciples to carry forward his mission after he's gone. As Jesus begins to withdraw more and more from public eye, he begins equipping more and more his own disciples to carry his mission forward after the cross. He's equipping his disciples for their mission after he leaves. Let's take a look at number two on your outline, Mark chapter six, picking back up at the end of verse six. And he was going around the villages teaching, and notice verse seven, and he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So you notice the shift here. Jesus is continuing to teach. He's continuing to go around the villages, but now he's inviting his own disciples to partner with him in this mission. And Jesus now begins sending his disciples out in pairs. And notice he's sending them out and begins to send them out with power, with authority, and with specific instructions. Notice again, verse 7, he summoned the 12, began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. Fascinating verses. Jesus sends his disciples out. He he knows that the opposition is growing. He knows that they're going to face opposition. But he sends them out, notice, with the bare necessities. He sends them out with the authority to cast out evil spirits, the very thing Jesus has been doing all along. But then he sends them out and he says, I want you to travel lightly. I want you to take only a staff or a walking stick and wear only sandals. I don't want you to take bread, a bag, money, or an extra tunic, extra clothes. Why? What's the lesson that Jesus has for his disciples here? As he sends them out into opposition, I believe Jesus is teaching his disciples to depend on him for their provision. Jesus sends his disciples out in opposition, but in doing so, he's teaching them with the bare essentials to depend on him for their provision. And that's what we see, notice verse 10. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Jesus is sending his disciples out to depend on God to provide food and shelter through the hospitality of Jewish households. It was common in this day, by the way, for 
traveling teachers and preachers as they were to travel around to stay within certain households that received them, that welcomed them, that showed them hospitality. And it's through the hospitality of these people that Jesus is teaching his disciples the lesson to depend on him ultimately for that provision. And this is the lesson Jesus has for his disciples to depend on him, to trust in him for the provision, even in the midst of that opposition. And there will be opposition. Notice verse 11. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Notice Jesus tells his disciples, there will be those who oppose you. Not everybody's going to receive you and hear your message. And as you leave those places, shake the dust off the soles of your feet, which is a visible sign of disassociating yourself from people. And he says it's a testimony against them. In other words, not only are they rejecting the disciples, but they're rejecting the one who sent the disciples. They're rejecting Jesus himself. So this is Jesus' plan. This is the mission that he has for his disciples. Let's see how it turns out. Notice verses 12 and 13. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. John Mark tells us here just how things went. They went well. As the disciples leave to carry on the mission of Jesus, as the opposition rises and rises, here we see they have great success. They, they go preaching that men should repent. They're casting out demons. They're anointing sick people and healing them. But again, ultimately what this is is a lesson for the disciples to depend on God's provision, on the mission that he has for them. This is a lesson I'm sure that our friends from Pine Cove have learned this summer as they're traveling around all over the place. And um, probably you're not taking a ton of luggage with you, uh, but you're, receiving, you're being received into people's homes, right? And I hope that these people are providing for your needs. Uh, but that's a, a lesson we see even right here, right now. But it's a lesson for us, for all of us as well. If you're a follower of Christ, if... If you're a Christian, God has a mission for you. I don't know what it is, but I guarantee his mission for you involves telling people who Jesus is. His mission involves making disciples. And at times it can be scary. He's sending us out into a culture, into a world where we too will face opposition. I guarantee it. But the lesson for us, as it is for the disciples, is to depend on him for that provision even when there is opposition. And it's to that theme of opposition we turn again as we look at number three on your outline. Here we see the opposition extended to John the Baptist, even to the point of death. Notice first Mark chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. And King Herod heard of it. For his name, Jesus' name, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. 
And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. By the way, the Herod we're talking about here is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the uh, son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. And Herod Antipas, like his father, was just as crazy and mad as he was. But at this point, notice in verse 14, King Herod Antipas has heard of Jesus. He's heard about his ministry. Jesus' ministry is expanding. And with the expansion of Jesus' ministry, so is the opposition to it. So Herod Antipas hears of Jesus' ministry and people start trying to come up with different explanations on what's going on. And some say, well, he must be Elijah. Um, He must be one of the prophets or maybe he's John the Baptist. And that's the conclusion that Herod himself comes up with. He says, well, he must be John the Baptist whom I beheaded, resurrected from the dead. Now, at this point, if you've been with us throughout the Gospel of Mark, you might be saying, well, wait a minute, John the Baptist has been beheaded? When did that happen? Uh, Well, thankfully, we're told, notice in verse 17, we travel back in time, and we're given the explanation, the backstory. Verse 17 says, for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John, John the Baptist had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So again, here we travel back in time to before Herod had John beheaded, and we're getting the backstory on what took place. We're introduced to a few more characters. So we have Herod Antipas, but then we also meet, meet his wife Herodias and his brother Philip. Now, here's what you need to understand, and you got to pay attention because this is a a wild family tree here. But Herod divorced his first wife in order to marry Herodias, who was also his half-niece. Herodias was married to Herod's half-brother, Philip, but she divorced Philip to marry Herod. This is like a first-century soap opera, right? This is as the world turns, and as the world turns here, heads are going to start turning as well, which is what we see. Notice Herodias, because John, come on, you you groaned at that? Verse 19, Herodias, because John the Baptist is calling her out on this unlawful marriage, Herodias had a grudge against him. And wanted wanted to put him to death and could not do so, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So here it gets more complex, right? So you've got Herod Antipas and Herodias. Uh, They're now married, and John the Baptist is calling them out for this unlawful marriage. And then this marriage is off to a great start because you have Herodias who wants to kill John, but Herod Antipas who kind of likes John. And so again, it's, it's like a first century soap opera. And so the question is, well, why, if Herod liked John, why did Herod have John killed? Notice verse 21. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday 
gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she, the mother, Herodias, said, the head of John the Baptist. Now, birthday parties, especially for kings, were pretty sordid affairs in this day and culture. They were often loaded with tons of drinking and sexual indulgences of all kinds, and that's what we see described here. So Herod calls uh, Salome, is her name, by the way. Uh, He calls her in, and she begins dancing for Herod and for all of his buddies. And she so pleases Herod that he makes this foolish offer to her, promise to her, and he says, ask whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom, I'll give you anything. And so Salome goes and she runs to Herodias and she says, what shall I ask for? And Herodias says with premeditated promptness, I want the head of John the Baptist. So verse 25, immediately, she came in a hurry to the king, she being Salome, the daughter, She came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. So immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. What a nice little birthday present. (laughs) And this is how John the Baptist is beheaded. John the Baptist's head on a platter, a gruesome final act to this birthday party. Then verse 29 tells us when his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Take note of, by the way, the parallels that John Mark is laying out here between what happened to John the Baptist and what will soon happen to Jesus. They took his body and laid it in a tomb. It's kind of a heavy passage, so I like to lighten it up with one of my favorite comments from a commentator, A.T. Robertson, who said this. He said, it's better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. (laughs) But why are we told this story? What's the point of it? Again, the point of this story is to show the rise in opposition that's happening to Jesus and to all of his followers, including John the Baptist. Herod Antipas's execution of John the Baptist is just a piece of the picture of what's ultimately going to be the rejection of Jesus. And it also serves as a reminder to all who are followers of Jesus the kind of opposition that we too might face. So this is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 29. And in this entire passage, we see again the rising opposition to Jesus and to his followers. But sandwiched right in the middle 
is the story of Jesus sending his disciples out on mission. He's sending his disciples out to depend on him for provision for this mission. And for you and I as well, as Jesus sends us out onto whatever mission he has for us, the lesson for us in this passage is to depend on him. If Jesus was opposed, and if John the Baptist was opposed, and if the disciples were opposed, then surely we can count on being opposed as well. But all along the way, the good news is that God provides for the needs of those he sends out on mission. And so the point of the passage is to compel us as followers of Jesus to trust in him. To trust in him as he sends us out. To depend on him for his care and concern, his provision in this lifelong journey of following Jesus. Like I said a little bit ago, listen, I don't know what mission God has for you. I don't know where Jesus is sending you, but I guarantee his mission for you, his sending of you, involves sharing with somebody the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. And Listen, right here in this room, I, I share that message every single week. That God loves you. That he sent his son to die for you. That Jesus laid down his life, dying on the cross for your sins and for my sins, and that by faith alone in Christ alone, you are forgiven, you are reconciled, you are redeemed. It's a simple message. And part of God's mission for you, I guarantee, is to go out and to share that message with those who desperately need to hear it. But there might be opposition. It might be a little bit scary. People might tell you no. They're not interested. So what Mark chapter 6 compels us to do is to depend on the Lord to make provision for us in that mission. And on the back side of your outline, that's the one thing I have for you from this passage. Your one major application, if you have time for nothing else, is to ask God to provide you with what you need. Maybe it's courage, maybe it's the right words, maybe it's just an opportunity to take the gospel of Jesus to someone this week. And all along the way to trust in him, to depend on him for his provision in this lifelong journey of following Jesus. So let me go back to the bag here. Uh, Again, this is my favorite bag. It goes with me everywhere I go. It has everything I need in it. Everything I need is located in this bag. And years ago, I took this bag with me on a mission trip to Haiti. And most of the ministry that I had going on there in Haiti was in Port-au-Prince. But at one point, we jumped on a plane to fly to the north coast to a a place called Capetian. A place called Capetian there in Haiti. And so I went to the airport in Port-au-Prince to fly to Capetian. And when I went out to see the airplane that we were flying on, the moment I saw this airplane, I thought, there's no chance I'm getting on this thing. Um, This thing, I found out later, was a Soviet area Uh, Soviet-era Czechoslovakian airplane. And by looking at it, it didn't look like it had flown since the Soviet area. Um, And so I saw this airplane and I thought, I'm really not confident that this thing is going to fly. But I had no other choice. 
So I reluctantly got on this airplane and we started flying to Capetian from Port-au-Prince. And along the way, we hit some turbulence and man, I got nervous. I got super nervous and I began to notice over the course of this journey that I began to develop a really severe pain in my neck, literally a pain in my neck. And I began then really to get nervous and I thought, man, what is happening? What is going on? What's wrong with me? Am I getting sick? What's happening? Um, And finally it dawned on me, the reason that I have this pain in my neck is because down through my arm, I had a death grip on this bag. I was clinging to this bag as though it had a parachute inside. It did not. But it was only when I realized just how strongly I was clinging to this bag that I decided I had to let it go to stop depending on it and to truly trust in the Lord. That if he had sent me out on this mission, it was either his will for me to die or to survive. (laughs) But regardless, I had to depend on him, not what I was bringing along with me. And listen, the journey of following Jesus is a little bit like when I jumped on that airplane. It might be a bumpy ride. There might be some turbulence. There might be some opposition. But the question is, what do we cling to when that opposition comes? When the opposition comes, do we cling to him? What this passage promises is that disciples of Jesus may be rejected, we may be persecuted, we may be opposed for following Jesus. That's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus makes provision for us every step of the way. And Mark chapter 6 calls us to trust in God's care and his provision in this lifelong journey of following Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we do confess that so often in life we cling to things rather than clinging to you, rather than depending on you. Father, thank you for sending us out. Thank you for sending us out on purpose with a mission to take the gospel of Jesus to more and more people. And we confess, Father, that at times it's scary. We don't know what to say. We are nervous. Uh, We're fearful of rejection. We're fearful of being opposed. But Father, in it all, I pray that as you've promised, you would continue to provide us with just what we need, just the right words, with the courage and the strength to share the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for those who are dying to hear it. Father, again, I pray for our friends at Pine Cove this week as they continually point our kids to Jesus. Give them courage. Give them the right words. And I pray that as the host homes here at Grace, that we would provide for them every step of the way. We would give them the encouragement they would need. We would meet their uh, just material needs as well. And Father, for all of us, as you send us out, help us to depend on you. And ask this for myself and for each one here. And I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.